Welcome back to In Pod We Trust, the number one podcast in the whole wide world about the past and the present, war and peace, law and life. I'm Sam Desai. And I'm Nick Danby. This is the second episode of In Pod We Trust. If you're new around here, you might be thinking, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) Here's the deal. We're two handsome, swashbuckling Harvard grads, and we know a thing or two about history, foreign policy, and political philosophy. We're starting the podcast with a mini-series on the great speeches of history. Last week, we covered Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and this week, Nick, tell the audience what we're covering. This week, we're focusing on speeches of inspiration and action. And for me, there is no finer barn burner, hellraiser of a speech than British Prime Minister Winston Churchill's 1940 address, We Shall Fight on the Beaches. Well, I'm excited to... Wait a minute, Nick. Do you hear that? What a beautiful song. What are we listening to? I'm glad you asked, Sam. This is Vera Lynn's 1942 recording of The White Cliffs of Dover. It was a very popular song during the war, mainly because it reminded the sailors and soldiers of Britain who were fighting abroad in Europe or North Africa or the Pacific of what they were missing, right? The beauty of Britain, the White Cliffs of Dover. But it was a reminder to them what they were fighting for, but also what they would see and enjoy when they returned from the front. Sensational. Thank you, Nick. Now, before we get into it, we just want to say we're so grateful to everyone who listened to the pod last week. We know your time is valuable, so we appreciate you lending some of it to us. And we also want to say a big thank you to everyone who privately reached out to us, as well as who publicly shared the podcast. It really means a lot. And with that, roll the intro music. We choose to go to the moon. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I have a dream today. In pod, we trust. Nick, I want to start with a clarification. One of our listeners reached out to me after the Lincoln episode, and they said, you know, I enjoyed listening, but isn't rhetoric just a way to trick people into agreeing with you? And you know, Nick, rhetoric gets a bad rap today. You might hear a politician and say, oh, that's just empty rhetoric. But the truth is that real rhetoric, at least rhetoric in the old days, it wasn't just bluster or fancy words. It's not inflaming the passions of your audience. When Aristotle and Cicero were talking about rhetoric, they meant a combination of logic and emotion. You need logic because if all you have is emotion, people are going to see through your facade. But you also need emotion because if all you have is logic, people are going to be bored. They're not going to pay any attention to you. So that's the clarification, and that leads me to a question. Nick, you said this episode is about inspiration and action. What is it about oratory that can inspire people to action? Well, as we discussed last week, Sam, speeches can be many things to many people. But I really believe that at its core, oratory's finest inspires us. The speech is a tool of politicians and leaders for a reason. Right? Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, for instance, at first glance is a typical eulogy, but it's also, at a deeper level, a call to action, inspiring the Union to bring forth a more perfect Republican Union, uh, to quote Lincoln, government of the people, by the people, for the people, 
And then think of another great speech in the American oratorical canon, MLK's I Have a Dream speech, which rallied the civil rights movement behind Lincoln's foreboding monument in D.C. But I think that among all those speeches, one speech that really defines and exemplifies the inspirational power of oratory is Churchill's We Shall Fight on the Beaches Address, delivered in 1940. Before we delve into the impact and mechanics of that speech, I want to hear more about Churchill. You know, when you think of a great leader of history, Churchill is someone that comes to mind almost immediately. Maybe you think of him with a scotch in his hand and a cigar in his mouth. I can give you some of the basics. Winston Churchill, I know he was born in 1874, served in just about every position within the British government, culminating in him serving as the British Prime Minister from 1940 to 1945, basically throughout all of World War II. And Churchill, of course, he goes down as one of the great prime ministers of all time because of his wartime leadership. But at the same time, like any leader, he's definitely not perfect. He's got his faults. Probably the main one being that he is an imperialist par excellence. But Nick, among so many figures in history, why does Churchill stand out? And I think it comes back to oratory as one of the primary reasons. People hear a politician speaking today and the oft refrain is, you know, actions speak louder than words or something dismissive, as you mentioned, Sam, about the impotence or the uselessness of rhetoric and, and speeches. But words can speak loud, almost as loud as actions. And they matter particularly when they are supported by action, right? When they're buttressed by action. And that's what separates the power of Churchill's oratory from others. Churchill not only delivers this masterfully crafted and, and deftly delivered speech to the House of Commons, he also acts on his promises in that speech. In the speech, he promises to defeat the Axis powers and then win the war, and that Britain will never surrender. He doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. Absolutely. He fulfills, as we'll talk about, just every promise in that speech. And that's by no accident. Churchill was an oratorical mastermind, mainly because he appreciated the value it had, the value of speaking and shaping the world and, and fulfilling his own political ambitions, even at a very young age. And this begins uh, really in, in earnest in November of 1897. At 23 years old, so just about around our age, well, smart, not yours because you're like 2.3 years old, but, but close enough. And, and bear in mind, 1897, this is 44 years before Churchill delivers the speech we're going to talk about today. And Churchill writes an essay at 23 called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric, and he never publishes it, but it clearly articulates his appreciation of oratory. And in this love letter to rhetoric, Churchill writes, and I quote, of all the talent, actually, you know what, Smart, I'm going to do a little Churchill impression for us, for our, for our listeners at home. This is, this is on the house. <clears throat> Of all the talents bestowed upon men, none is so precious as the gift of oratory. He who enjoys it wills a power more durable than that of a great king. He is an independent force in the world. It's not bad. I'll work on it throughout the rest of the podcast. But it's important to note, I want to flag the quote, oratory is an independent force in the world. Very interesting. Winston Churchill, 23 years old, when he writes this essay. Sam Desai, 23 years old, when he starts his podcast. Nick Danby, already 24, late to the game. Doesn't really have a future. <laughs> Nick, last week with Lincoln, we said it was watching his dad tell stories by the fireside that sparked his interest in oratory. What was Churchill's oratorical origin story? Well, much like Lincoln, Sam, it actually begins with his father. Churchill caught the public speaking bug because he watched the great speakers 
of his time. He kind of had a front row seat. And one of those great speakers was his father. His greatest influence, in fact, was his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, who was a leader of the House of Commons for the Conservative Party, the dominant party in England at the time, Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is the equivalent of an American Treasury Secretary, and was just a very prominent figure in the British government. And Churchill, as a kid, would attend the House of Commons, and he would listen to the speeches, particularly those from his dad, which he memorized and studied very thoroughly. And so with such a, a personal introduction, a ringside seat to government, Churchill then begins to study the great speakers and politicians in British history, right? We're thinking William Pitt, uh, Gladstone, Disraeli, Cromwell, the list goes on. But oddly enough, his greatest teacher in oratory was not a Brit, but an American. And in, in late 1895, Churchill visits the U.S. at 21, and he meets a New York congressman by the name of Burke Cochran. Ever heard of Burke Cochran, Smart? I, uh, I can't say I have, Nick. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a rare one. And, and Churchill was just amazed by this man. I mean, essentially fangirling over him when he meets him, calls him, quote, a remarkable man in letters home. And Churchill particularly loved, among other things, how Cochrane spoke, which was defined by a booming voice and these rolling, gradual, melodic phrases, right, kind of building up in anticipation. And Churchill asks him, point blank, how can I become great like you? And Cochrane gives him two pieces of advice. First goes to style. Cochrane tells him to speak as if he were an organ, use strong words, and enunciate clearly in wave-like rhythm. And that's how Churchill begins to develop his initial speaking style, which very much resembles music. And we'll talk about that later. But secondly, Cochrane also advises Churchill about the power of substance. Cochrane tells him, quote, what people want to hear is the truth. It is the exciting thing. Speak the simple truth. And in his We Shall Fight in the Beaches address, Churchill does just that. Churchill minces few words when he addresses the House of Commons. He tells everybody in the world how dire the British situation is. But at the end of the day, what makes the speech so great is that he's being truthful about how bad it is, but he's also being truthful about what he believes will happen the ultimate success of Great Britain. Fascinating. Was Churchill inspired by anybody else in the United States? Or did he form any relationships with others? Oddly enough, Churchill returns to America again in late 1901. He's 26 years old now, and he's on a speaking tour. And Burke Cochran, once again, coming through, he sets up a dinner for Churchill with then-President William McKinley and also Vice President-elect Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, McKinley was in D.C., Roosevelt was in Albany, New York. Two of your favorite people, Churchill, Teddy Roosevelt, one dinner. Right. Well, you would think, what a great meeting, right? Here are these two bold, swashbuckling, you know, larger-than-life men of history. But apparently their meeting was nothing to write home about, literally. Uh, in a long letter to his mother about his American travels, Churchill says that he's, quote, considerably impressed with McKinley, but he never mentions Roosevelt. And really for the rest of his life, Churchill only makes vague, sparse passing references to him. And oddly enough, the feelings were, I guess, mutual. Roosevelt, in fact, very much disliked Churchill. And after the dinner, Roosevelt's disdain for Churchill only grows over the years. Roosevelt writes repeatedly to friends how he, quote, dislikes Churchill and how Churchill possesses, and I'm quoting Roosevelt directly here, such levity, lack of sobriety, lack of permanent principle, 
and inordinate thirst for that cheap form of admiration, which makes them or people poor public servants. And then finally, one of my favorites, he calls Churchill a rather cheap character, which I think I've, I've used to describe you, Samarth, at least once or twice. Well, I guess it makes sense that Churchill rubbed the Roosevelt the wrong way. It's almost like, you know, two huge magnets repelling each other. And I know Churchill definitely had a reputation for being this egotistical, larger than life personality who was convinced that really he was a man of destiny. I remember reading that one of his school chums recounted a conversation he had with Churchill when he was 16 years old. Churchill said, dreams of the future are blurred, but the main objective is clear. London will be in danger, and in the high position I shall occupy, it will fall to me to save the capital and save the empire. So I guess in a way he was right, but what a weird thing for a 16-year-old to say. (laughs) So Nick, how does Churchill practice oratory over time? How does he improve? Much like you explained last week, Sam, with Lincoln, Churchill gets better through practice. First of all, he's reading constantly, and he's obsessed with preparing his speeches. And, and Churchill calls all this, quote, cultivation, right? It's more nurture than nature. And I'll give you an example. When he commissions in a cavalry regiment and he's sent to India after graduating from the Sandhurst Military School, he begins his self-education or autodidactic phase like Lincoln. He requests that his mother send him endless books from England. And in this hot, blistering Indian heat, he would read up to five hours a day of Macaulay and Shakespeare, Plato, Burke, Darwin, Bartlett's quotations, the Bible, Cicero, the list goes on and on and on, right? He's reading the best. And so the point here is to write great things, you have to read great things. And that's the first kind of instance of cultivation that Churchill has. And then after learning how to write well, he would begin practicing and overcoming his impediments. I love reading stories about Churchill where he would be in the most random of places, walking down the street, he'd be at dinner, he'd be at the theater, and under his breath, he would just be practicing delivering speeches to try to get rid of his mumbling and his lisp. Yeah, that lisp was really important as an impediment, and Churchill would religiously practice words beginning with S to make sure they sounded correct. He would walk down the streets saying sentences like, the Spanish ships I cannot see since they are not in sight, right? making sure that he enunciated clearly. And eventually he did get rid of his stammer, although you can still catch faint wisps of his lisp later in his career. Now, Nick, talk about the third and final element of his cultivation, which is the rigorous preparation of speeches. Absolutely. He just always was practicing. And he intended, he later wrote, to polish his speeches until they glitter. And so aides and and friends and family would hear him in his house or his room, bellowing his speeches anywhere, right? On the street, in the theater, but particularly in his bed, in the bath, anywhere he deigned fit. And a classic piece of Churchill lore is when Churchill is practicing one of his speeches in the bath and his valet asks, were you speaking to me, sir? And Churchill hastily replies, no, I was addressing the House of Commons. (laughs) What What a very interesting man. And sometimes Churchill would even pretend he was a member of parliament from another era, and he would practice delivering speeches on the early 19th century corn laws or American independence, and he would kind of imagine what position he'd take and and what he'd say. Does Churchill ever get to the point where he feels like he's a natural, or is he more like like an MJ, like a Kobe Bryant, you know, first one in the gym, last one out, even after you've won three championships in a row? Definitely an MJ or Kobe. He's always practicing, never gives up. I'm working on a piece right now for publication next year about Churchill's commencement address at Harvard in 1943. And the night before Churchill travels up to our alma mater in Cambridge, Mass., to deliver this address, 
He's having dinner with FDR at the White House. And everything's going fine. It's a, it's a splendid dinner. The only problem is Churchill, who just acts so bothered, so irritated throughout the entire meal. And so people ask, you know, what's, what's wrong with the prime minister? And Churchill's wife reminds everybody that before Winston delivers any major speech, he's never been pleasant company. And in that instance, Churchill was upset because he hadn't even begun to write the speech yet. And this is a rarity because usually Churchill undergoes a rigorous writing and editing process days after days, drafts after drafts. But nonetheless, later that night, on the train from D.C. to Boston, Churchill spends his entire train ride, almost his entire train ride, working on the speech. Now, let me add, he is bothered beyond belief. His doctor writes that he thinks he has the flu because he's so irritated the whole time. And I should remind you that Churchill was not a spring chicken. He's 68 at this point. But he stays up all night, redraft after redraft, and he's tweaking that speech all the way up until he walks on stage. So to answer your question, Sam, he never stops practicing. He's always working at it, no matter how good he gets or thinks he gets. But I'll quantify this for you. I know, Sam, you're a former management consultant and numbers matter a lot to you, so here you go. For a roughly 40-minute speech, Churchill would spend, on average, about eight hours writing and revising it. And that's not including all the time he would spend, as we would say, marinating, which, if I'm not mistaken, I believe is your excuse for why you wrote your college essays a few hours before the deadline. And if I remember correctly, a few hours after the deadline. If I'm not mistaken, it's also probably why I got a better grade on the Shakespeare paper than you, Nick. We can, <laughs> we can bring out the receipts if you want. No, no, no. no. We, all, we both got A's in the end. Doesn't matter. All right, Nick, let's fast forward to June 9th, 1940, the day of the We Shall Fight on the Beaches address. What's the context? Give us the who, what, where, when, why. Sure. Churchill's preparing Great Britain for a long war, a world war, World War II. And Churchill delivers this speech on June 4th, 1940. And to put this in context, about nine months earlier, in September of 39, Germany starts World War II by invading Poland, which then prompts France and Britain to declare war on Germany. And in April of 1940, so this is now two months before Churchill delivers this speech, the Nazis invade Norway, and the British government of Neville Chamberlain, who had appeased Hitler at the Munich conference in 1938 in order to achieve peace, uh, falls apart. And Churchill, who has spent the better part of the 1930s going through what he termed his wilderness years because he had consistently railed and complained against the Nazis for so long, he's essentially vindicated, right? He's warned the world about how dangerous Hitler and fascism is, and now he's, he's been proven right. So he emerges as the nation's natural leader. So on May 10th, Nick, Churchill becomes the prime minister. And on the very same day, the Nazis launch a blitzkrieg of France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Yeah, not a great first day in office. Now, around two weeks later, Churchill decides he has to evacuate British and Allied troops from Dunkirk. That's what's depicted in the great Chris Nolan movie. By June 4th, six days before he's going to deliver the speech, there is now widespread fear that France is going to strike a peace deal with the Nazis, and that would leave Britain as the only Allied power remaining in Europe. So it's a desperate situation. It looks like Hitler may actually win. So that's the context. Now let's get into the real meat and potatoes. And as we did last week, Nick, I want to break it down into substance and style, starting with the substance. What's the overall thesis of the speech? Churchill's message is that Britain will continue fighting. 
It's that simple. And although he delivers this speech before the House of Commons, the speech isn't just a speech for the Parliament. It's really a speech for the whole world. That Britain will, to quote Churchill, never surrender. It will keep buggering on. The Nazis will not defeat England. And Churchill achieves this by saying a few things in his speech. First, he admits to Britain and the world that he anticipates the fall of France. That the only thing standing in the way of Nazi domination of Europe is England. Secondly, he signals British resolve and the willpower to defeat the Axis powers. And third, he then begins rallying the British war effort by predicting, and I would go so far as to say assuring an eventual British victory, despite the imminent Nazi invasion. And lastly, he requests American support. And so throughout this speech, we can see that Churchill is heeding Cochrane's advice. He's telling the truth. He's admitting, yes, I know the situation is bad, but I do believe it will be better, and I do believe we will win in the end. It is a speech of political transparency, as Cochrane would have suggested, but it is also a call to action. And what about structure, Nick? Last week we saw what Lincoln did, past, present, future. What's Churchill's structure? Very simple. It's another three-part speech to Marth, just like Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. First, Churchill sets the scene. He relays the dire situation. He recounts the Dunkirk evacuation, which happened 16 days earlier. And he does all this to relay the seriousness of the conflict to the British people. Let's take a listen. When a week ago today, Mr. Speaker, I asked the House to fix this afternoon as the occasion for a statement, I feared it would be my hard lot to announce the greatest military disaster in our long history. The whole root and core and brain of the British Army on which and around which we were to build and are to build the great British armies in the later years of the war seemed about to perish upon the field or be led into an ignominious and starving captivity. And then Churchill says that, yes, despite these awful circumstances, he's optimistic. He believes that the might and the willpower and the perseverance of the British Empire and its people will come together and that they will be victorious in the end, but only if they work together. And so he begins outlining his strategy for success. Here it is. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. And then to wrap it all up, Churchill deploys what Cicero, the great Roman orator, would call the peroration, which is the, the coup de grace, the final bell, the bugle, if you will, of the speech. This is the climax, and it's really the speech that we all remember. It's when he rallies the world by promising the Brits will never give up. Here it is. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island.
whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. We shall never surrender. What a phrase, what an ending. Let's talk about the style, Nick. I noticed some alliteration in there. Absolutely. Let's start with your suggestion, Sam. Alliteration. Uh, some of these weren't mentioned in the recordings that we heard, but I'm going to go through some of them that I found in the speech. Sharp scythe, right and rear, cut off all communications, lands of liberties, fight in the fields, flag or fail, subjugated starving, and my favorite, the grip of the Gestapo. And there's also something else. I'm still not sure if it's a proven rhetorical device, but it's something I always try to implement when I'm speaking. And I call it the ABCD approach to listing things when you're giving a speech. Churchill writes that the British supply line ran through Abbeville and to Boulogne and Calais and almost to Dunkirk. Abbeville, Boulogne, Calais, Dunkirk. A, B, C, D. A, B, C, D method, Nick. I like that. You should trademark that. I also heard an allusion as a LinkedIn scholar. I couldn't help but notice when Churchill says the Brits trapped in Dunkirk showed the measure of their devotion. To me, that's a clear reference to Gettysburg. The men who died here showed, quote, their last full measure of devotion. Absolutely. And throughout the speech, there are sprinklings of references to Napoleon in World War I, particularly his reference to previous continental tyrants, right? He's basically telling his audience, we've seen this before. We know how it ends with Britain ultimately winning, no matter the pain, no matter the sacrifice. What other tricks does he use? The killer, of course, is really the best for last, and that's anaphora, right? The repetition of a sequence of words in the beginning of a sentence. So it's the we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and oceans. We shall fight in the beaches and the hills. That's something out of an English oratorical textbook, really. The momentum builds up, and Churchill really plays it up, all the way to we shall never surrender. That's the whole point of the speech. And Churchill always used to end his speeches by driving home to an undeniable point. You know, He never, ever beat around the bush. As Churchill himself said, you know, if you have an important point to make, don't try to be subtle or clever. Use a pile driver. Hit the point once, then come back and hit it again, then hit it a third time. A tremendous whack. Basically, he says, beat the audience over the head with the point. And that's clear here. Never surrender. You know, I'm blown away by how prophetic Churchill is in this speech. Not only for correctly predicting that the Allied powers will win, but also that last sentence is so interesting. In God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, will step forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Absolutely. Churchill was particularly prophetic throughout the 1930s and 1940s. He's one of only a handful of prominent Englishmen who consistently rails and complains and hates Hitler even before he starts biting off pieces of Europe. 
And in the 1940s, in this speech, he also proves particularly prophetic for two reasons. First of all, he truly believes that Britain will win World War II, that the Allies will be victorious in the end. And I should add that that's not a very popular opinion in 1940. Hitler has gobbled up just about every country in Europe besides England and France. France is about to fall, and England, it looks like, is going to fall as well. It lacks equipment, material, manpower, and there's no sense of America joining the fight anytime soon. But in the end, Churchill's vindicated. He sees the end of the war, and he leads a war victorious Britain. The second prophecy happens towards the end of the speech. Churchill says that no matter how dire Britain's situation may be, if they face a possibility of defeat, that the new world, with all of its power and might, will step forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Now, the new world, that's the Americas, but it's not Venezuela or Panama. It's the United States of America. He believes that if Britain is on the verge of losing and all of Europe is subjugated by the Nazis, that the Americans will rise to the occasion and liberate the old world. And it's Churchill's prophecy that the power and hegemony of Europe is essentially over, that the rest of the 20th century will be dominated by America, that America will be the superpower. Let's now move on from writing to the other element of style, which is delivery. This is something that we couldn't talk about with Lincoln because unfortunately we don't have a recording of him. We do with Churchill. And to clarify, the recording we heard wasn't a live recording. It was a recording that Churchill made in 1949 of the address. But Churchill has a very unique delivery style. Talk to us about his delivery. The word that comes to mind is, is music. And that's how Churchill really thought of his speeches. His speeches were like elegant symphonies. The concluding we shall paragraph is crescendo, textbook. And that was purposeful by Churchill. He felt, as I was mentioning earlier, that a speech should bring forth facts, quote, all pointing in a common direction. The crowd anticipates the conclusion and the last words fall amid a thunder of assent. And, and Churchill does this by increasing his tempo and his volume and his pace till he gets that final phrase, we shall never surrender. Additionally, one of my favorite things about Churchill's delivery is that the man wrote in poetic meter, or lyric verse. After the speech had been drafted, one aide wrote that the copy, quote, looked like a draft of a poem. And as you listen to the speech, you can tell the clauses are short and choppy. There's no long breaths for Churchill. And, and in our show notes, actually, we provide a link to a photo to look at the speech's draft. And you can see it. It's typed as if it was a poem or a Shakespearean verse. And the last thing is the rhythm. It's key which Churchill learns from studying Shakespeare. He delivers his speeches as if he's rigorously adhering to the sheet music, right? He's, everything is pre-planned. Every note, every pause is scripted. And that's because he could not improvise to save his life, and he knew it. So he left nothing to chance. He even wrote out stage directions in his speeches. You would see the words pause or purposeful stammer or grope for word littered throughout the drafts of his speeches. Every move, every gesture, every word he said was completely purposeful. What else does Churchill teach us? We've said practice, and I think that comes down to also being the wordsmith, loving the English language. The average English-speaking person's vocabulary is somewhere around 25,000 words. I think in your case, Smarth, somewhere around like 250. Million. Uh, <laughs> sure. But in Churchill's case, his vocabulary reaches around 65,000 words. That's triple the average. Basically, the man is a walking thesaurus, and he had a, a wide array of words to choose from in his speech. 
And he also had a very specific word preference. He hates, hates long words. And he wants words that kind of leap off the page. For example, look at, at what he termed, you know, some of the things which eventually caught on. He coined the term joined hands together instead of agreed to cooperate. He said airfield instead of aerodome. He said prefabricated instead of ready-made. He called it the home guard instead of local defense volunteers. I mean, I love that. I mean, that's home guard. That's what it is. You know, local defense volunteer sounds very bureaucratic and stodgy. And he also said things like blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Instead of writing something like one of our Harvard friends would have written that read like hemoglobin exertion, lamentation, and respiration. One of my favorite Churchill quotes, short words are the best, and the old words when short are the best of all. Absolutely. Churchill realized what it took me so many years to understand. Excellent writing is not determined by the length of your words or your sentences. Nick, I know that another one of our heroes, JFK, was a big fan of Churchill. Did this speech influence him in any way? Undoubtedly. You know, this speech rallied Britain at a time when the country was in desperate need of a, of a shot in the arm. And JFK later wrote, quote, In the dark days and darker nights, when England stood alone, and most men, save Englishmen, despaired of England's life, he, Churchill, mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. And that's really the only thing that Churchill could send into battle. Because after he delivered his speech telling the world how Britain would fight and defeat the Nazis and be victorious in the end, Churchill turns to a colleague in Parliament and he says, and I quote, and we'll fight them with the butt ends of broken beer bottles because that's bloody well all we've got. But it didn't matter because as Labour Member of Parliament Josiah Wedgwood wrote to Churchill after the speech, quote, my dear Winston, that was worth 1,000 guns and the speeches of 1,000 years. Quite the legacy. And of course, Churchill later won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1953. First of all, he won it for his six-volume history of World War II, and he famously said, history will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. But he also won it for, according to the prize committee, his brilliant oratory in defending exalted human values. Nick, if we want to learn more about Churchill, where should we go? Well, you could read some of the defining biographies. These include William Manchester and Paul Reed's three-volume series, The Last Line, and for something a bit shorter, Andrew Roberts' recent biography titled Churchill. You can also watch the 2017 film Darkest Hour, starring Gary Oldman, which really focuses on the time frame we focused on in this podcast. And I'll just add, if you ever find yourself in London, in the Whitehall area, you should definitely check out Churchill's War Rooms. It was his war office, his headquarters during the war, completely underground to protect him from the German bombing above ground. He had a bedroom in there, he had dining, and of course, a direct phone line to FDR. Nick, I can't imagine the conversations that those two had on that phone. Well, similar to the conversation I just had with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson shortly before our podcast, Sam, he was so enthusiastic to hear our chat about Churchill that, in fact, he wanted to congratulate us in advance. Boris Johnson, noted friend of the pod, Nick, send him my best. I will. Let's look ahead to next week. In the next episode, we're going to talk about a speech that I think, and I'm saying this diplomatically so I don't 
offend Nick or Churchill on their episode. For my money, no greater speech was ever delivered than this one by a man named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. And if you have questions or comments, email us at podwetrust22 at gmail.com. Thanks again. Take care. In pod, we trust. <laughs>